Well, it's been delightful to be with you all this week. I'm grateful for the opportunity to think through some of these things again. I'm excited about this creative arts conference that Emily has spearheaded. It's just great. Lucas and Emily are amazing. And Emily makes beautiful things, but her heart is beautiful even more than the things she makes. So that's, that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not going to be able to be there. I'm speaking somewhere else that very weekend, or I would be here. And I, I think it's just going to be great. I was just talking to a woman who, she started a career as an illustrator for children's books and just was not enjoying the, <clears throat> the professional grind of it. And, and so she got out of it, and she said, I, I have no idea what to do with, with my art. And I said, go to this conference and you'll get help and you'll meet people and at the very least you'll be inspired and meet people who have your heart and, and passions as well. So she's coming and her husband will probably come with her. He's a great cellist. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm excited about that and I'm excited about finishing our Habits of Grace study we've been doing. We've been talking, if you haven't been here, about how we grow and there are two things that I have been trying to emphasize every night because when we talk about our role in our growth, it's easy to slip into legalism or moralism or a works mentality or thinking it's all about us. But we've been calling these habits of grace. They are habits. They are things we devote ourselves to. They are things we discipline ourselves to focus on and get after with earnest, eager uh, pursuit, but we realize that it's a pursuit that is beginning and continuing and will end with awesome grace. God never calls us to anything he doesn't provide for us. And so grace always precedes command with God and favor. He does not say to Adam and Eve, rule over and subdue, be fruitful and multiply, before he says that his favor is on them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. His blessing, his favor, his grace, his provision always precedes command. So, so I've, I've promised, I, I've gotten the group to promise every night that we'll work to ground this in grace and the gospel of Jesus. It's a finished work. As we grow, we're not earning salvation, working for our salvation. We're working out our salvation. We're working out our faith. And the ultimate goal and the primary goal of our growth is not our growth. Our growth is a necessary part of increasing intimacy with God and enjoyment of Him, which is the fundamental way we glorify Him. So I've just got to preface that every night for those of us who have been here and especially for those of us who haven't. But we're gonna, uh, we, we've walked through 1 through 5, uh, word, prayer, worship, giving, serving. And tonight we'll walk through the last four. We've said that these all work interdependently. It, I, I even hesitate to, to delineate them in, in any way that's separate from each other. But it, it's helpful to do that. And we can focus on these things. But as we are more and more uh, mature in our Christian lives, we'll see how beautifully interdependently all of these, these means of grace are working together as we devote ourselves to them. We'll see things coming into play when we didn't even expect it. When we're in the Word, we'll be growing in our heart for God and missions and serving and giving. These things all just flow together. There's not sort of a chronological order to them. But they all work incredibly interdependently. And also, I want to highlight again, the Holy Spirit is the essential person of the Trinity that is making these things transformative for us. This is not about character development, primarily. It's about enjoying God. And the Spirit of God is the one who brings enjoyment of God. I love the verse where it says that, that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. The incarnate Son of God depended on the Spirit's work for his joy. And so we, we too are. And the, the passages I've chosen to highlight just very briefly for all of these habits of grace are all ones that highlight the Spirit's role in that, except for a couple, like the first one we'll look at tonight. He's not in that one, but, but I'll, I'll point out uh, 
the context of, of evangelism. So the, the first one tonight I want to look at is proclamation. This is not usually on a list of spiritual disciplines. This tends to be one of those things we think about doing after we're in a good place with the Lord. And there's truth to that. When you're enjoying God, when you're delighting in Him, it very naturally leads to speaking well of Christ, of exalting Him with our words, of, of savoring Jesus Christ. And you can't truly savor something without wanting to share it, wanting to proclaim it from the rooftops. But this, again, is one of those things that usually isn't on a list of spiritual disciplines, but I believe is a spiritual discipline. I mean, look at what... Paul says to Philemon, I pray you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You expect him to say, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so the person you're sharing it with will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. But he says, no, so that you will. Now, certainly you want the person you're proclaiming the gospel to to have a full understanding of every good thing they have in Christ. And we, we know that, but do we know that proclaiming is actually a sanctifying reality for us? It's a transforming reality for us. And, and this is true of anything we treasure. When we really treasure something, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's like Jeremiah is saying that, that I can't keep this in. I can't keep the word of God in. It's like a fire in my bones, when we're really enjoying God, we don't need exhortations to do evangelism. Now, we need exhortations to do evangelism because I think unless we're speaking well of Jesus, we won't develop the kind of passion for Christ that we're called to have. And so, so we are putting into words what has become the most precious thing to us. And if Jesus is the most precious thing to us, person to us, how can we not speak of him? And there are so many examples of people seeing Jesus for who he is, and then no matter what the obstacles may be, proclaiming Christ even at threat of their lives. Do you know the word love never appears in the book of Acts? That interesting is the church is getting established in the preaching of the gospel that's going out, is, is going out, the word love never occurs one time in the book of Acts. Now, there are certainly loving displays among God's people as they care for one another. I don't want to say love doesn't occur in the book of Acts, but isn't it interesting that the word doesn't occur? Especially when you think of how often that sort of is the only word we talk about sometimes when it comes to the gospel. But, now, that's not to minimize the importance of love. First John makes up for that all by itself, right? But it is interesting, as the disciples are described throughout the book of Acts and what they preach and who they are, their love is not what's highlighted. Do you know what is the significantly emphasized attribute of the disciples that is highlighted in the book of Acts as the church is getting established? Nothing comes close to boldness. Their boldness is stunning to people. They say things like in Acts 4 that they, when they saw that these common uneducated men nevertheless had a boldness, you know what they said about them? And they knew they had been with Jesus. They looked like Jesus because Jesus' boldness didn't come from his credentials. It came from the Holy Spirit's empowering and his treasuring of God and God's word. And then the disciples started to look like him. So as we, we delight in God more, as we treasure him more and put that into words, he becomes more precious to us. I love food. And I, I could talk to you about um, food, right? And I could talk to you about my wife. And as I talk about my wife, as I have done this week, telling you how I treasure her, my treasuring her of her has gone deeper. I could talk to you about the best pizza in the world, which is in New Haven, Connecticut, on Worcester Street, in Little Italy in New Haven, not far from Yale University's campus. If you don't believe me, just Google Worcester Street Pizza and you'll see what I'm talking about. But I could describe to you why 
it's the best pizza in the world. Their coal-fired ovens never go out. Incredibly high temperature, no canned anything. They get it there at four in the morning at Sally's and Peppy's, and they start chopping the vegetables and the meats that are going to go on there. It's all fresh, and the ovens are so hot when they put these uh, Neapolitan pizzas in, the flavor gets sealed in because it's so hot, and it gets a little bit burnt on the bottom, and there's cornmeal on the bottom of this masterfully created dough. And you know you've eaten a great pizza if the roof of your mouth is a little raw when you're done. Oh, it's amazing. And the sausage are giant hunks. My mouth is watering right now. As I'm talking about New Haven pizza, I'm expressing my appreciation for it. But as I'm doing that, you know what's happening. My appreciation's going deeper. And if that's true of pizza, how about the lover of my soul? How about the one who, who saved my life from certain eternal death? It's amazing how evangelism can feel so awkward and unnatural to us when if you think about it, it should be about the most natural thing there is to be effusively expressive about the most important person in our entire life, right? And so, so, so to think about speaking well of Jesus as not only a command not only the great commission that we express as evangelists, which we all are, we need to realize it's not only something we do in ministry, it's something we do in, in sanctification. It's, the way, it's one of the key ways we are transformed. Um, I'm sure you've had the experience of helping someone else appreciate something, and right as you're doing it, your appreciation deepens. And so proclamation is a vital habit of grace that we need to devote ourselves to. Okay, comments, questions about proclamation, evangelism. Now, I use the word proclamation very intentionally. Another chapter of my book that I'm writing, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying, is I think we should stop saying, there's nothing wrong with this, but it's not the most biblical way to talk about evangelism. Overwhelmingly, when we say we... we we're doing evangelism with someone. You know what we say we do? What did we do when we did evangelism with someone? We shared our faith. And there, yeah, man, that's a fine statement. But it, when you read the New Testament, there may be one verse that would lead you to talk that way about evangelism. But overwhelmingly, it's bold proclamation words. It's keruso. It, it's this exhortative strong, bold, um, declaring. So proclamation is a really good word as our primary word to use when we talk about evangelism. I, I just think share my faith. One, share is a bit of a weak, much weaker word than what we get with proclamation, preaching. I know preaching is a very unpopular word, but at least it's got a boldness to it, which is kind of probably why it's unpopular. Right? Don't preach at me. Don't be so preach. When's the last time you heard the word preach used positively? Goodness. Well, you're in good company if you're a preacher. It'd be like Jesus and Paul. So, so preaching is what we're called to do. That's why I don't use the term share my faith because actually it's not primarily my faith I'm sharing, is it? It's Christ I'm proclaiming. My faith can be very weak. I don't want to share my faith because, quite frankly, everyone has a faith to share. I want to point away from myself to Jesus. You know, if you see the apostle, uh, if you see uh, John the Baptist uh, portrayed in, in art, he's always pointing. He's pointing. So is John the apostle. He's pointing away from himself to Christ. And my faith seems like a pretty misdirected small thing to be the primary thing I'm proclaiming. I'm not proclaiming my faith. Now, there needs to be a legitimate faith in Christ for me to be able to proclaim it rightly. But in the same way that we shouldn't use the term, you may be the only gospel anyone ever sees. Goodness gracious. The gospel was accomplished 2,000 years ago. I hope I'm not the only gospel anyone ever sees. I'm not the gospel. The good news is something Jesus fully accomplished. I'm sorry if I'm blowing up some of the cliches that have been precious to you, but so be it. I, so... Um, 
we want to point to Christ's finished work that he accomplished on our behalf, not my faith. My faith is a puny little thing that may be admirable at times, but much of the time is not what I want to be pointing you to, (laughs) right? Because quite frankly, people have amazing faith in things like yoga. So if it's really my faith that I want to direct you to, well, then it's up for grabs who's got the most of it. I, I think they're... I mean, you know who has incredible faith? Muslim terrorists when they fly planes in the building. Right? So if it's about faith, they put me to shame. Right? So, so it's Jesus. We're proclaiming Christ to people. Not just sharing our faith. I mean, sharing's the word I use with my cookies. It's not a bad word, but I... And, but, we're afraid of appearing overly confident, I think, or bold. And I think in the process, we seem unenthusiastic compared with people talking about their favorite band. And let's not, let's not be that way. Let's be more enthusiastic about Jesus than anything in the world. I have a friend who's a, a wonderful evangelist. And John met my next-door neighbor, Glenda, who I had talked to many times about Jesus. And he met her for the first time, and he said, Hey, Glenda, how are you? And he said, Glenda... Have you ever trusted Jesus? That's the first thing he said to her. And she said, well, no. And he said, why not? I love that. <laughs> you know, you don't always have to do that. But I, I talked about this in my class one time at Biola. And I got an email from a student the next week. And she said, after you talked about what you did in class on, on, on Tuesday, I went home and for the first time ever, told my best friend of seven years about Jesus. Now, I'm thrilled she did that. But at the same time, this this woman's best friend of seven years has never heard about Jesus. If you you had a three-hour conversation with me and it never came up that I was married, that'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? You'd think, wow, there's something wrong in that marriage, I think. Well, how about seven years without talking about someone incredibly more important than my wife? And so, so if we're weird about evangelism, the people we're talking to are going to be weird about it too. And, and we need to get to the point of delighting in God to the point where it's not, it's not something that requires all kinds of discipline to speak well. I can remember telling my friends in kindergarten that they were going to go to hell if they didn't trust Jesus. <laughs> I can't so clearly. Mrs. Bolovic's class, I can remember she got upset with me. So, um, so, but it's so important to realize that when we proclaim, we grow. All right, any questions about this? All right. Fellowship. Now, um, I've said that all these disciplines are operating ideally as they're intended primarily in the local church context. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen outside of that, like right now. But ideally, biblically, there's a centering, an authority, a structure that enables these things to happen the way they're intended by God in a local church context. Uh, But fellowship is this interrelating of God's people that expresses our neediness for God through one another. This is incredibly hard for us to appreciate because there's something in us, especially men, as I was saying the other night, who who like to appear at least that we're not needy. And, And we've got to get to the point where we realize that there is absolutely nothing wrong and everything right about needing other people. The fact that you're here tonight, I'm not sure if you're consciously thinking this way, but the fact that you're here tonight gathered, seeking to learn, shows a humility and a recognition that I'm not okay unless I gather with God's people, open the word together, and learn by intentional pursuit of that. And so so gathering with God's people is absolutely essential. Meaningful local church involvement, commitment to the fellowship of the saints, founded in local church but spread, or spread out beyond that as well, is a non-negotiable reality. It is the fundamental way we are to express our, ver- our 
vertical relationship with God horizontally. Read 1 John. He can't get half a sentence out talking about the love of God without saying, and make sure that finds expression in your love for others. Or it's tragically insufficient and incomplete. And he even says, if you say you love God and don't love your brother, you're a liar. Bang. And so it's, it's that, listen to Jesus. By this, all will know you're my disciples. You know what it is? If you have love for one another. That, that, that's the hallmark right there. First John, I told you it makes up for Acts all by itself. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How do you know you're real? How do you know you're not just going through the motions as a religious person? We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Your love for the people of God, the, the, the fellowship of the saints, that doesn't mean you don't love the world. You don't love people generally. doesn't mean you don't love your enemies. But what it does mean is there is a qualitative love you have for God's people as a priority that you depend on for a assurance validation of who you are. And the way I hear people talk about Christians who are Christians really concerns me sometimes. Do you love the bride of Christ? You can't love Christ if you don't love his bride. He shed his own blood to create a church. And if you don't love the people of God, you don't love Christ. You don't. Uh, it, it's really stark and clear. We, we are to know and abide in Christ through fellowship. And it's always about Christ. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a missions strategy. Is that how you would summarize that, yeah. that perspective? Yeah, I don't know how I can justify a mission strategy that requires me to disobey what the Bible says. I'm, I'm just racking my brain, sort of going through the New Testament right now, trying to find some sort of biblical justification for that. But my goodness, just the New Testament has an a, a, a identifiable church in really dangerous places and having a massive impact, sometimes because they're being persecuted and people are seeing who they are collectively and the way they love each other and others in all kinds of contexts that look a lot like Jordan, actually, in the first century. So I just, I'm, I'm not finding a biblical basis for that philosophy of ministry. Yeah. Um, listen to Kevin DeYoung, preacher from, from, well, he was in Michigan. I've never met a Christian who was healthier, more mature, and more active in ministry by being apart from the church. But I have found the opposite to be invariably true. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. 
And the less involved you are, the more disconnected those following you will be. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. And a well-developed doctrine of the church is essential for us to understand this. I think, in my experience, many of the Christians I meet have a very shrunken view of the church. They don't have a biblically informed view of the church. Have you ever cried reading a dictionary? I have. Actually, several times. Not like Webster, but theology dictionaries. The the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology is one of them. The New Bible Dictionary is another one. But listen to just a portion of the entry. I, I did. I seriously cried when I read this whole entry. But this is the portion that just sent me over the edge. This is a definition, part of the definition of the church by R.G. Close in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the sun about which the whole mission of the church revolves. Public worship is the encounter of the risen Redeemer with His people. Evangelism is calling men to the Savior. Publishing the law of God is proclaiming His Lordship. Christian nurture is feeding His lambs and discipling His flock. Ministering to needs of men is continuing the work of the great physician. We are his ambassadors. We are the people who are extending the ministry of Christ in the world as his people who are identifiable. So we're the people who raise our hands and say, we are the people of God in this place, at this time, in this location, and we are about the business of Jesus' work that includes everything that means. And so we've got to recognize that these key marks of the church have to be there, like the Spirit of God obviously working, the Word authoritatively preached, the prayer of the saints going up around the work of the ministry, praises offered corporately, the offices of elder and deacon and evangelist have to be in place. We have to be sending missionaries. We have to be serious about discipline. We have to be practicing the ordinances and doing evangelism. That's why it's so important we continue to make distinctions between the the church and parachurch organizations like Hume Lake, which I absolutely love and are devoted a lot to. But but Hume Lake is very self-consciously a ministry that comes alongside the local church. That's literally what parachurch means. And so the expectation is we're all grounded in the local church. That's who we are. It's not an optional spiritual discipline. Listen to Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, not creating a big name for themselves. I can't imagine Paul ever naming his ministry Paul of Tarsus Ministries. I'm not bashing people who do that. It's kind of what you do when you reach a certain level of prominence. I just can't imagine one of the apostles saying, John the Apostle Ministries. Just can't imagine. It's, it's about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and basically thinking about working yourself out of a job. I think it's a good idea to say to, to pastors, look, Jesus had three years to do his ministry publicly. And he was always thinking about that. There's no doubt about it, which is how, why he invested in others to equip them to continue his ministry. Not to make a ministry. He says, you'll do greater things than I. Imagine that. And so, so it wasn't about himself. It wasn't about his, his ministry only. It was about raising up ministers to continue the ministry. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you see how corporate that is? Do you see how communal that is, relational that is? It's not you alone on a mountaintop with your Bible. It, it, that's fine to do, but, but so you can go back into the community and have the impact you want. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've read that the statistics are saying a third of people who used to regularly attend church since COVID aren't anymore. How, how could that be? 
there's so many things that war against appreciating the church the way we should, but, but we've just got to ask ourselves the question, do I love the church? Not just the idea of the church, not, but the people. Uh, not because they're like you or make it easy for you to like them, but because they're the people for whom Jesus died. And it's not easy to, to really dive into this because people are difficult. And one of the hardest things about the, the church is one of the best things. You don't get to pick who's there. You don't get to pick who's there. To be a part of your local church, anybody who's a true believer in Christ can become a member of your church. And so, and, and people who aren't can attend, but, but truly being part of your church is not something you get to be selective about. So what happens is you end up having family you would never choose as a friend if that's all that we're up to. And that's one of the most difficult things about being committed to the body of Christ, and it's one of the most important things about it. I want people to look at my relationships and say, wait a second, you two keep calling each other brother. It doesn't look to me like you have anything in common. And I want to say, you know what? According to hobbies and demographics and race and background and socioeconomic status and all the stuff we tend to define people by, you're right. But we have the overwhelmingly most important thing in common, Jesus. And he blasts through all those things that separate and divide us. And let me, let me just say this really quickly. I, I'm just I'm putting it out there these days, I, even though I know probably the majority of you might be bothered by this, but in the 70s, the church growth movement, grounded in Fuller Seminary, came up with all these church growth principles that churches latched onto in this country. And one of the ones that I think was a grievous thing is called the homogeneous unit principle. And it's this idea that if you want your church to grow, give people groups to be a part of of people just like them. As if we're not segregated enough in most local churches. We've got affluent churches, we've got churches the poor people go to, we've, we've got churches divided by all sorts of things. And as if we're not already divided enough when we go through the doors, we say, old people over here, kids over here, teens over here, uh, singles here, uh, young marrieds here, older marrieds here, marrieds with children over here, and before you know it, we've got a mountain biking group in the club that, that they have their own little mini church within the church. And we're so bifurcated that the 80-year-olds don't know the 18-year-olds. And, and so they just get more and more cranky. And the 18-year-olds just keep pooling their ignorance with each other. And, and we're not just obeying the Bible when it says older, disciple the younger. They don't even know the, the, the younger, usually. Because they don't like their music. Right? If we could sing together, we can do just about anything together, right? And then this, this contemporary, traditional worship thing is just waving the white flag and just saying, we, we can't agree on even what to sing in worship. And we've got this term, worship wars, and it's mostly a generational thing. You hear a lot about diversity these days, but I hear almost nothing about generational diversity, which I think is the only kind of diversity the Bible explicitly puts as a non-negotiable in your church, where the older disciple the younger and, and we've got to get that going. We bought into this church growth principle, and here's the problem. It works. Numerically, it's true. Relationships with people different than me are hard. They're hard enough with people like me, and now you want me to get to know some old guy or some kid who's just driving me crazy. Yeah, we've got to depend on the Spirit to enable us to have the kind of fellowship that will make the world say, how do you two love each other? You don't have anything in common. All right, I'm just going to throw that out there. And then move on. Okay. Um, suffering. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, 
And, and having the same mind starts with having the mind of Christ in this context and his humility. And, and then we have commands like this in Ephesians 5. It's just incredible what it says in Ephesians 5, right before all the husband and wife stuff that gets all the attention. It says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Which means be like Jesus. Lay down your life. Put your petty entitlement and preferences aside for something so much greater than that. Submit to one another in fear of Christ. So yeah, fellowship of the Spirit again is what we have. And, and he's saying, if any affection, I mean, you just you can hear his voice. If any affection, I mean, do you have any? Any mercy? <laughs> if so, then fulfill my joy. He had a, a healthy sort of Christian codependence. He says, my joy is dependent on you living this way. Um, be like-minded. You pursue like-mindedness on things. Having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. It's beautiful. Okay, Suffering. Again, I've never seen this on a list of spiritual disciplines, but I think it's one of the main ways God calls us to grow. And you may think it strange for me to say we need to, we need to suffer as a habit. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by it is uh, that... What's going on here? Oh, well, it's not on my computer, doofus. There we go. Um, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There we are again, dependent on the Spirit for this. But what do I mean by suffering as a habit, as a discipline, as something we commit to? What are you, a masochist, Thomas? You know, what's that about? No, there are two kinds of suffering I want us to think about. Suffering we don't choose and suffering we do. And with both of them, we should go about it in a way that seeks our growth. Don't forget we follow the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. Many philosophies of life tell us that the greatest goal for your life is to avoid suffering and find pleasure. And God's people are the ones who see suffering in this fallen and cursed world for this time, not for eternity, but for this time in this world that's groaning in the pains of childbirth, we recognize that it's one of the main ways God is causing us to become like his son, who's the man of sorrows, familiar suffering, and created with grief. Now he's taken on our suffering, but as his representatives now, we follow the Calvary road as well. And that includes suffering. Do you think taking up your cross imagery is possible without suffering? So when we encounter suffering we don't choose, what does it mean to make it a spiritual discipline, a habit of grace? It means you lean into it. It means you don't just go into avoid at all cost mode, no matter what. Get out of this. No, your first question is, Lord... What do you have for me in this? There's nothing wrong with praying for it to go away, of course. But when suffering comes your way, no matter what kind it is, relational, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, financial, whatever it is, we've got to have an attitude that acknowledges God for this time in the fallen world in which we live, suffering is one of the ways he wants us to be growing. So we lean into it. My friend Jack Mitchell my dear friend Jack Mitchell, who's with Jesus now, he had horrible back problems, and he had to have surgeries and injections. And he, he had got several injections in his spine. And, and he told me this story because the doctor would say to him, Jack, you've got to give me your spine right now. He said, if you do this, it's going to make it 100 times worse. You've got to, to give it to me. You've got to offer your spine to me. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's horrible. But, but if you fight this, if you try to avoid it, it's going to make it worse. And so he, it, Jack thought of that. As he's getting this injection, he's thinking, that's how I need to think about suffering. I need to say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? 
I need to say at times, not my will, but thy will be done. There's nothing wrong. We should be praying for healing. We should be praying for deliverance. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we do have suffering that comes our way, we've got to go into it seeking for God to work to make us more like Jesus, who's the man of sorrows. And then there's suffering that we don't choose, that there's suffering we don't choose, but then there's suffering as Christians we do choose. What do I mean by that? Christians are people who so trust God to take care of them with the suffering in their own life that they start looking for suffering in the lives of other people to take on. Not in some unhealthy way, but what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? What does it mean to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? What does it mean to truly serve and care for people? It means you enter into the pain that isn't yours, that you could avoid, but you choose to walk right into. I, I, was, uh, I was enjoying a, a, a wonderful time with my family, and I got a phone call from a woman in our church who told me that her, her brother and sister-in-law found their 18-month-old baby dead in the crib and asked if I would go over there. Um, Something in me didn't want to. But you know, I've walked into these kind of situations enough in my life to know that God can use people who are really frail to really be helpful, but also to profoundly have an impact on the person who walks into this stuff. Caring for Andy and Shireen and their two little girls on that day and ever since was not just for them. It was for me. Walking into those kinds of situations are things I instinctively want to avoid. That's hard. You go say, what in the world am I going to say? And they weren't, they're not, they weren't, they are now. They weren't Christians at the time. And the dad is, is yelling at me, cussing away, pouring out his heart to God at the same time. It was awesome. It was just incredible. He was the end of himself. He had been fighting against God his whole life. And, and they're, they're believers now. This only happened four months ago. They're part of our church, but, but walking in the tough situations, you know, walking, staying in hard conversations. I remember I asked Ajit Fernando, who's from Sri Lanka, I said to him, Ajit, what are our blind spots in the American church? He said, oh, he didn't even hesitate. He said, you have a great theology of church growth, but you don't have a theology of church groaning. You don't help people suffer well. You, 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 um, you know, and I said, how are we supposed to help people suffer well when we spend a lot of our lives in a coffee shop that like you and I are in right now here in La Mirada. And he said, oh, that's easy too. Just stay committed to people. And you'll suffer. And they'll suffer because of you. So stay in there with people. And, and that's where the fellowship and the suffering really come together. And so, so we've got to be people who are devoted to leaning into suffering and choosing suffering. You know, I am so inspired by people who, who do this in incredible ways. So Amy Shaw is a dear friend of ours from when we were at Wheaton College. She was a student in my wife's residence hall that my wife was running. And Amy's just an incredibly vibrant, wonderful person. And she married an amazingly godly man named Brian. And Brian and Amy had four children who are just beautiful, delightful children. And they had a burden for orphans. And, and, and they especially had a burden for, for adopting an orphan who had a disability, a significant one. They felt that God had cared for them in a way in their hearts and in their lives where, where they were up for that challenge. And so they did. They, had, they adopted uh, a little girl. Uh, and and I, I just want to show you the Shaw family, how it finally ended up. <laughs> Four biological children, six children adopted with disabilities, every one of them. I mean, it's so easy to get in this mind. And look, it, it, it couldn't be more right to pray when you're pregnant. We just want a healthy baby. 
That's right. That, that's how we should pray. But how about a mentality that says, we would really like an unhealthy baby, please. That, that's what we would love to be able to care for. Now, this, they call their home Glory View. But three years ago, Brian got a brain tumor, and, and he died last year. And now here comes suffering they didn't choose. And you would think, well, this is just going to completely destroy Amy. No, it was the opposite. You know, when you decide to just continue to take on surgeries and endless doctor visits and tests and all the brutal things that come with taking this responsibility on, the emotional trauma you take on, you think, well, that's, that's going to make you weak. No, it makes you strong. I remember reading Dallas Willard years ago, and we tend to think that scoundrel Satan, Jesus is fasting for 40 days, and then he throws this food temptation at him. When Jesus is at his weakest, and Dallas Willard said, no, the Father doesn't allow that temptation until Jesus is at his strongest, until he's got things really in perspective after 40 days of putting food in its proper place. And I think this is true. We tend to think that suffering is going to make us weaker. And there's a truth to that. But when we lean into it with God's sovereign goodness, depending on that and his love flowing out of our hearts, we will be shocked at how he can use us to not only suffer well to the glory of God when we don't choose it, but choose to suffer by taking on the sufferings of other people. Suffering is something we commit to as a habit of grace. Finally, the Great Commission. We've got to get here or we failed miserably. Uh, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, God is a missional God. He is a God who loves the nations. He's a God who reaches out to lost humanity and takes the initiative and the lead in redeeming lost humanity. And as his representatives, we do this as a response to our understanding of what he's done for us, but we do it also as a habit of grace. I've never known a godly person who didn't have a deep concern for the nations. And I've often wondered, did they, did they um, become godly because they loved the nations, or did they love the nations became, because they became godly? And I don't think it's an either or. I think it works together. Um, and, and so, so there's, there's a commitment to missions. The Great Commission is what drives us. So when we get the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, and the Great Commandment, love God and your neighbor, and we bring those together, we get ministry exactly how it's supposed to be. But there's got to be a missional concern about this. Listen to what Floyd McClung says. What is your driving passion in life? We live in a world of competing passions. If we do not die to self and fill our lives with the consuming passion of the worship of God among the nations, we will end up with other passions. It's possible to deceive ourselves into thinking we have biblical passions when in reality all we've done is to baptize the values of our culture and give them Christian names. We will have chosen apostolic passion only when our hearts are filled with God's desire for His Son to be worshipped in the nations. And so what does this mean? It means that we lean into, again, that we pursue God's heart for the Great Commission reaching the uttermost parts of the earth. We, we, we cultivate that in our lives. My life can so easily become very small. My entire day can be consumed with my ten things on my list of things to do. In my little world, it can become everything to me. But when I wake up and I look at my Joshua Project Unreached People group of the day that comes on my phone every morning, this morning it was a group in India, and, and there's less than 2% of the people in this group, this people group in India, who know Jesus, and I read about them, and I, I get my eyes off of my little world, and I think more like God does. And, and so there are things we need to do to cultivate that, like pray for missionaries, fast for the gospel to reach the world. Uh, give financially to missions. I hope your church and I hope you have a major priority in giving to missions. Read missionary biographies like Amy Carmichael's and Adoniram Judson and Eric Little. We have friends coming up here in a week and a half. They have, a, uh, have 10 children and every one is named after a missionary. 
One of them is Amy. One of them is Adoniram, and their middle name is Judson, and their middle name is Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, Clark, Adoniram Judson Clark, Eric Little Clark. I didn't even realize this list has all my friends' kids on it. Look at that. Hudson Taylor Clark is another one. So I encourage you <laughs> to read missionary biographies and maybe even name your kids after heroes like that. And read Hudson Taylor's biography um, through Gates of Splendor. Uh, pray about going. I think there are only three options you have when it comes to missions. Go, send and support, or be disobedient. I think those are your only options. <laughs> and, and we've got to realize that this is not only what we do out of obedience, it's what we do to grow. As we cultivate a heart like God's for the nations, we will grow in holiness and godliness. And it doesn't mean you necessarily go, but it means you have the heart of a missionary. And I'm giving all the chapters away to the book. Will somebody please just go write it for me. But one of the chapters is I think we should stop saying we're all missionaries. I get what's good about that. We're all ministers. We're all evangelists. We're all priests. We're all saints. But can we have one word? Can we have just one word for those like Gra and her husband Nate who go? And we, we cheer them on and support them and send them and give them a place to stay when they come home and, and, and see them as representing us in an incredibly needy place that's hard to be at, way hard. And I know the truth of Hollywood's a mission field. I know. But there's also a church everywhere. And there are Christians all over the place. And I'm not minimizing ministry. Like, I, I'm not a missionary, so please don't, don't think I'm beating you up. But, but please, let's reserve a word that, that, that still gets those who really go way outside of what's easy and comfortable. And, and every, yeah, anyway, so there you go. I, I just want to end with this illustration, this incredible woman. So I never met her, but um, uh, Gloria Coleman was the mother of one of my mentors, one of the most significant mentors of my life. His name is Robert Coleman. His brother's Lyman Coleman. And Robert and Lyman Coleman have had a massive impact in the world. Robert wrote The Master Plan of Evangelism, The Master Plan of Discipleship, and has spent his entire life training missionaries and ministers all over the world to do evangelism. And he's just an incredible man. And I got to travel with him, and he was a huge influence. And his brother wrote Sunday School Curriculum, that's been used all over the world. But the reason the Coleman boys are the way they are and spent their lives the way they did is because of their mother. Their mother wanted desperately to be a missionary. And then she married an Iowa farmer. And she spent her entire life as a farmer's wife in Iowa. But she never lost her burning passion for missions. And she so inspired her boys that they lived the way they did. They were both at her deathbed when she died. Do you know what her last words were? Boys, make sure my missionary pledges are all paid up. <laughs> Those are the last words that Coleman Boy's mother's ever, mother ever said. And they did, and then some. And so I just love that example of, of a woman who, who had the heart of God for the nations to be reached with the gospel. She spent her life on a farm in Iowa, but she never lost that passion. And her godliness was profound because of it. It, it was part of her growth, not just an outgrowth of her growth. Well, there you go. We did it. Got through all nine this week. Comments or questions, thoughts? Few minutes we have left. Kev, uh, Kevin DeYoung. D E capital Y O U N G. Good Dutchman. You're welcome.
It's not an event you attend once a week. It's a life. It's, it's family. It's relationships. Like I said the first night on Sunday night, I showed you a picture of some people in my church, and I said, that's who's going to take care of my wife and kids if I die tonight. Yeah, it's, it's family. I hate how the word family's been co-opted by everybody. The Starbucks family, please. No, no, the church is more family than your biological family. And, and it's hard for us. I mean, people get offended when I say that. But biblically and historically, do you know how many Christians said goodbye to the earthly families the day they became Christians? A lot. That's why Jesus says, unless you hate your, your family, more than you, if, unless you hate your family compared to the way you love me, can't have anything to do with me. That's because he was preparing Christians to, be, to follow him knowingly saying goodbye to their earthly families because they were going to get disowned. I know a woman in India who, the, her, her, her Hindu family was actually okay with her becoming a Christian, but not being baptized publicly. So weeks went by and they were like, all right, just add Jesus to all the gods we already have. But when she publicly went through the ceremony, they said, you're not our daughter anymore. And the pastor led her to Christ and his wife, she became their daughter. That, that's what church is like for a lot of Christians in the world now and throughout the history of the church. And see, it, it's, it's family. It's the people who are there to rebuke you, correct you, exhort you, and, and take care of you. I just love that it says about the church in Acts that there wasn't a need among them. Wow, that's a goal we have at our church. We, we want to be at our best when people are at their worst and, and have it be said of us, wow, there's no, there's no need among them. They, they're just on the job when something happens. And, and I got to tell you, the women in our church especially, they're like the cavalry. Something goes down and somebody's like, dur, dur, and there's like, dur, 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 and it, it's like, okay, back off a little bit. Give them some space, please. It's incredible. I remember, um, you, I'm, a lot of you know Leah, Leah Peterson who lives here. Um, she and her husband went to our church since they were 18. And um, Brian's an amazing husband, but Leah's first husband died, and the morning he died, it was 2 a.m., and we were supposed to have a men's breakfast that morning at 7 in the morning, and we said, should we have it, should we not have it, because Jeff wouldn't miss a men's breakfast, Leah's husband at the time, and, and we said, let's have it. It was supposed to be on the holiness of God, so I taught for 10 minutes on the holiness of God, and then we just reflected on ways the holiness of God was obviously evident in Jeff's life. And then we, we worshiped, and then I looked all, like 200 men in the eyes, and I said, guys, as of 2 a.m., there are, are five fatherless children in our church and a widow as of 2 a.m., and they cannot go without the family of God, and especially men right now, to come alongside we really had to call a whole bunch of guys and say, guys, give, give her and the kids some space. Because they were like at the house all the time. Like, what can I do? Can I fix it? Can I get your girls? It was just incredible. And, and till, till Leah and Brian moved, women showed up on, on Saturday morning and cleaned Leah's house. It's just, I had a friend, they were across the street from me. I had a front row seat through my living room window of the people of God getting it done in that sort of way. It's not some event you attend. And then review on Yelp. Ever read church reviews on Yelp? Don't. It'll, it'll make you sad. I love you guys. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for the transforming power of your truth. Thank you that it's all by grace and it's all gift. And Jesus has done it all. And when he said it's finished, he meant it. But Lord, thank you that we extend and continue his ministry and we continue that primarily by becoming more like him and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and becoming deeper and more mature and more godly. It's amazing we can even use that word for ourselves, but, but you tell us to. And, and so that's what you call us to. And so, Lord, I pray for uh, the things we've talked about this week, that they would take root in our hearts, that we would know and love you above all else, that we would delight in you above all else and depend on the Spirit's work to do that and then, and then get after these ways we grow, these habits that we seek to become part of our lives and see you work in beautiful ways. Lord, thank you 
for your kindness to us. Thank you for these dear ones and for the, those who've been here this week. And I pray that you'd help us all to take what we've learned, myself included, and go deeper in our delight in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.